Well, if you've been with us over the last uh, couple of weeks, you know that we've started a new sermon series in the book of Matthew where we're talking about how Matthew is with laser clarity focusing in on how God, uh, Jesus is the king. He's the king. And he has done with uh, copious detail, poured out information about uh, Jesus' genealogy where uh, two weeks ago we looked and saw that Jesus is indeed the rightful heir to the throne of David, because not only is he a son of David, he is the son of Abraham. He is descended in the appropriate line. And last week, as we talked about um, Jesus' virgin birth, we had the opportunity to see that not only was Jesus son of David, son of Abraham, he was son of God. That's why he had a miraculous conception. And so, uh, as we so frequently know so clearly at Christmas, there are all kinds of angelic announcements. There are all kinds of really just wild things that happen around the advent, the birth of Jesus. And then things go strangely silent. We don't hear anything else until Jesus is around 12 years of age. And then things go silent again. We know very little about his childhood, his teenage years. As a matter of fact, the information about Jesus does not become, um, there's not much of it until he begins his ministry at the age of 30. But we know very clearly from the birth stories of Jesus that uh, that God, through the gospel writers, is revealing something. There is a revelation about who Jesus is. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we begin to see something that is good for us to see. And it's this, that revelation, the revealing of knowledge, doesn't save anyone. There are all kinds of things that you know that you don't do anything about. It is responding to, reacting to, receiving that revelation that is determinative. You hear, listen, they say uh, human knowledge doubles about every 1.7 years. All of the knowledge that we've accumulated over human history doubles every 1.7 years now. That's mind-boggling. Don't ever buy a set of encyclopedias because they will be out of date the moment you get them. And so this morning we come to uh, the story that is, um, I hate to say this, so often affiliated with the Christmas season but is historically inaccurate. And that's the coming of the wise men to Jesus. Now, all of y'all have a nativity scene that has the shepherds who we know were there right after Jesus was born. We don't know anything about cows or sheep or angels were there. But then we got these three wise guys that we put into the manger scene. And we know very clearly from Scripture that they came at some uh, time after his birth. We'll see today. Jesus is, when they, come to, when they come to Jesus, Jesus is not referred to as a baby, but as a child. It could have been up to two years. The, the best guess is Jesus was probably a year old, but he was not a newborn. We know a couple other things. <clears throat> Jesus was born in a manger, in a stable, and when the Magi come to him, they find him where? In a house. So they, they have some kind of semi permanent housing in Bethlehem. They're not in a cave, not in a stable, not in a manger. And there's another thing that we know. We know that um, 
we know that when Jesus was eight days old, they took him to be circumcised. And, and as they go about that uh, religious ritual, <clears throat> there is an offering that is made for your child. And so there's very specific um, law for what those offerings are supposed to be. And you remember what Joseph and Mary gave as their offering? Two doves, which is the gift that um, you make when you can't afford a sheep or a ram or a bull. So here's the issue. If our manger scenes were correct, and the three wise guys showed up early with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh, why would they have given God two doves when they would have had other riches to give? So uh, there's a funny story. Uh, I don't know if many of you have ever participated in a um, white elephant gift exchange. It goes by several things. Dirty Santa. It's basically you find stuff around your house and you give it away. And so we were at the seminary, and we had been invited to a, uh, <clears throat> to a party, and we had, we had a great time. And there was this uh, white elephant gift exchange. My wife, I guess, hadn't read the invitation, but I had wisely um, brought a gift for, our, for us as a couple. And as the gifts were being exchanged, um, one of them was open, and Marcy goes, Wow, that looks just like the wise men from our nativity set. <laughs> to which I replied, that is, those are the wise men from our nativity set. This was the culmination of many years. Whenever we would put out our, our nativity scene, I would always stick the wise men like in the bathroom or in the foyer with a little post-it note that says, meanwhile, somewhere in Asia, you know, because they weren't there at the birth. It was later on. And so when we, when we come to this story, there's, there are some really good things for us to understand. And I think in addition to kind of re- Hashing the Christmas story. There's a very poignant observation for us this morning that is good. And my prayer this morning is that as we talk about a story that we all know and we all love and we're all going to make biblically correct nativity scenes from now on, there's a, there's a point, there's a, there's, a, there's a kick at the end of the story that's, that's really very helpful. And so I just want to pray that God will uh, not let you just hear my voice this morning, but that you will hear his and that you'll respond rightly. Let's pray. God, as we have the opportunity to um, study your word today, God, we don't study your word to become smarter sinners. We don't study your word to get, <clears throat> to get a pen. We must obey. God, I pray today that as we look at this story of the three wise men, and as we begin to observe how people respond to this newborn king. Oh God, that in our hearts you will help us to respond rightly too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll we'll begin our investigation this morning by asking a question. What do we know about Herod and what do we know about the Magi? And if you'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we get a kind of a a little primer here. We get an introduction. God's word says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. What do we know about Herod? Well, we know several things. In many ways, Herod would have been considered a good administrative ruler. I chose my words carefully there. He was a good administrative ruler. 
Uh, history, secular history, records that his famine relief was superb. There were several famines that happened, and while uh, as king he was entitled to uh, earn his riches off of the toil of his subjects, when famine hit, he would give back tax money that had been stored in the palace to provide relief to his subjects. As a matter of fact, his heart was so soft for the people that he ruled that he even melted down gold objects in the palace to liquidate those things to be able to provide food from Egypt for the people that were starving. Herod was a local ruler over what we would now call the Holy Lands, but he was admired around the world for his building projects. He built theaters and racetracks for the entertainment of his subjects. We know that he restored Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, in the time of Christ. He was involved in many city improvement projects in Samaria. He built the port city of Caesarea. Uh, He built uh, Beirut, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Rhodes. He did a lot of good things. He was also very cruel and merciless. He was obsessed with his own power. As a matter of fact, he killed his favorite wife because he grew so paranoid and delusional with his power. Not just that, he killed her brother because he was a threat to his throne. After emasculating his grandfather-in-law, that wasn't quite enough because he realized that he had some access to the throne and uh, kind of like what we see happening in North Korea. He decided, I don't care how old he is, I need to take him out. So he slew his grandfather-in-law, killed two of his own two sons to to solidify his power base. And so we see here in verse 3, it says, When King Herod heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. When Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, It was not that they were sad to see him go. They were troubled because they knew if he was troubled, there would be trouble coming for them. And he grew so paranoid about his reception by the people that one of the most treacherous things that he did was when he was on his deathbed, he was fearful that no one would mourn him when he died. So he rounded up the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem. And at the moment of his death, he commanded that they all be executed so that there would be mourning in the city where he died. That's despicable. And so this is the man, very quickly, that we're introduced to in this story about Jesus' uh, early childhood. Uh, Caesar, who had installed Herod, was well aware of Herod's uh, megalomania. And in a wordplay that we don't quite get because we don't speak the language, he said, it is better to be Herod's pig, his hui, than his son, his huias. Better to be Herod's pig. You're safer being his farm animal than you are being in his family because of his paranoia. What do we know about the Magi? Well, the Magi were outsiders. They came seeking a king, and they arrive at Jerusalem. In the verb tense here, in verse 2, they are continually asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The idea here, by continually asking, is that they they did not automatically go to the palace to 
make their, ask their question. They got to Jerusalem. They said, we're here. We're looking for him. So they go to Walmart. They go to, you know, they go to whatever, uh, Bennigan's. They go to the restaurants. And everywhere they go, they're creating a stir. Because Herod's not asked this. You remember the word that they used? Herod heard this. Maybe he wouldn't have been so troubled if they would have come to him first. But he hears all of his citizens going, who are these guys that are asking this question. They're coming seeking a king. These people who are not Jews, who are coming from the east, are asking this. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that's, that's fascinating, when you look at the, the, the word studies, the word magi, the word that we use for wise men, uh, y'all can spell it, it's four words, M-A-G-I. And it actually looks like something in English that is helpful to understand who they are. Because our word, magician, is derived from the word for magi. These were people who were, um, probably the easiest way to say it, were people who were involved in some occult-like practices, which I hate to break to some of you, included astrology. Paid attention to the stars. And instead of relying on the sure word of God, hey, I'm more interested in what that little paragraph in the newspaper has to say about my destiny. Listen, if that's a temptation for you, let me tell you there's a much better way for you to find information about your destiny. And it's between Genesis and Revelation. Pick anywhere in there, and you'll have a better word than what some editor gets paid to write. It's the same people that write fortune cookies. What is that drivel that is there? But these are people who are involved in astronomy and astrology and occult-like practices, and they had some knack for figuring things out in the future. It was uh, demonic in um, in its origin, But here are people who are coming from either Persia or Babylonia. And they're saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? They come to the land of the Jews. And what are the Jews doing? Not looking. Here are these people who are not Jews that that come. And I just ask the question, where in the world would these people have heard about this person who was destined to be born the king of the Jews. Well, there's an interesting portion of history when we talk about the Jewish people. You see, the Jewish people, because of their unfaithfulness, were deported to Babylon. And in the nation of Babylon, there was a particular Jewish man who rose to some prominence. And in Daniel chapter 2, Verse 48, we find out something really interesting. The king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and ruler and in the chief prefect over who? All the wise men of Babylon. Could it be that many hundreds of years prior to Christ's incarnation, that Daniel had been a faithful witness to the prophecies in the Old Testament, that hundreds of years later, here were a band of wise men from a pagan and cursed country who come looking for the king that Jesus' own people are not on the lookout for. It's amazing to see. And so we find out some kind of interesting political history about what is happening here. And certainly Herod, as king was not a Jew, he was a 
Idumean. He was descended from Edom, but he converted because he was king of a Jewish nation, and he married a, a good Jewish girl. As a religious leader, he's supposed to be an exemplary religious figure, making his sacrifices, saying his prayers, going to temple when you should, standing up when you stand up, sitting down when you sit down, dropping some coins in the plate when it passes by. But the truth is, this king is not even looking for the arrival of the true king. And it brings us to our very first point. When we look at this contrast between Herod and the Magi that occurs in the first three verses of this chapter, there is a great contrast that is set up for us here between actively seeking Jesus and only looking out for yourself. As king, Herod is supposed to be shepherding his people in the way that they should go. And he's really ticked off when there's a rumor that the prophecy of the king might be coming true under his rule. He's not interested in the king. He's king. And that is really an issue that we have to wrestle with too. Now, we're not not Herod. We're not cruel and merciless. We may not be in positions of leadership. We may not have uh, the religious prowess that he's supposed to have as an elected leader. But don't we every day have to wake up and decide who's going to be in charge? Some days you don't choose well. True? Some days you don't choose well. We're reminded here by the arrival of these outsiders that we must never give up the responsibility that we have every day and every second of the day to make sure that Jesus is the king, not in word only, but in deed. And so the story moves on from here in verses 3 through 8. Herod is rather paranoid by what he is hearing. He's troubled, and all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. And so he gathers the religious leaders to find out what indeed is going on. Uh, Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. So gathering together all the chief priests, all the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Well, we've had a brief introduction to Herod. We've had a brief introduction to the Magi. We'll come back to them here in just a second. But we're now introduced to some other residents of Jerusalem that have some... um, Interesting knowledge. They're not surprised when the wise men show up. Herod gathers them together. All of these religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests. And Herod asks them the question, what are these guys talking about? Evidently, the king hasn't read the book. And he needs to find a reference. He needs someone to remind him of what as a leader he should already know. 
And there's a certain, wow, there's a kick in the pants that happens here. Because the religious leaders know that they should be on the lookout. They know the city. They know the tribe. They know everything. And the truth of the matter is that the religious leaders, the picture that we get is that they're more worried about Herod's disposition than they are about the Messiah's incarnation. Herod's troubled. We better answer his question. They're obstinate. They knew the right answer in their minds, yet their hearts were so disinterested, they wouldn't travel 10 kilometers, what's that, six miles, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to investigate whether an Old Testament prophecy had come true. And this is Matthew's second fulfillment scripture. In uh, chapter 1, verse 23, he refers to the prophecy in Isaiah that the virgin would be with child. Well, here, Matthew is showing this, uh, painting this picture of Jesus being the fulfillment of scripture. And he refers back to Micah 5, 2. And he says, we know where the Messiah is going to be born. In the religious leaders, the people who are supposed to love this word from God, had the scriptures and did not search at all, had no expectation for their fulfillment. <clears throat> and this is what I think it means for us. <clears throat> A difficult thing to say in church. But it needs to be said that knowledge of Scripture is not always the best gauge of spiritual maturity. Knowledge of Scripture is not always the best gauge of spiritual maturity. Do you believe that? Have you seen that? Parents, I know there are some of you who have done everything you know how to set a good example and to cherish in your heart God's word. And you wonder why your young adults, raised in that environment, don't want anything to do with it. And the thing that is so perplexing about this is you know they know better. You know that they know better. And the problem, I think, perhaps with the American church is that you can study the Bible a ton and still not have a clue how it applies to life. The purpose of Sunday school, of small groups, of even sermons where we spend 40 minutes talking about the Bible is not that you win at Bible Trivia Pursuit. It is to transform the way that you live. It's to make you, men, a better husband, a better father, a better employee. Women, in the roles that God has called you to be in, it's to inform how you make decisions. A church I served at previously, there, there was a man who had a, uh, wow, just a Mount Vesuvius anger problem. And it was public. It was not, you know, don't meet him in the lobby. It was like in the middle of worship. 
you know, he'd just get angry. And something went up to his expectations, and boy, he would let you know about it. His poor wife worked in the nursery because she never wanted to be associated with him. You know what church people said? I'll call him Adam. That's just Adam. What do you call that? Empowerment? Lack of love? Complete disinterest in discipleship? To allow a man to hijack a church and say, ah, it's just him. Well, the problem was after 60 years of the church saying that, uh, Adam was a problem. But he happened to be in Sunday school every week. And he could tell you the books of the Bible forwards and backwards. Had his Bible knowledge down. You see, there's going to be a lot of people in hell who are going to get, have perfect attendance pins and they're going, to win, they're going to get all the pieces of the pie to Bible trivia pursuit. But if it doesn't make the jump from your brain to your heart, if your knowledge of the Bible doesn't translate into obedience to the Bible, then your Bible knowledge is just painted pageantry, Charles Spurgeon says, to go to hell in. Powerful words. You see, even in our day and age, there are people who want to divorce, divorce knowledge of the Bible and knowledge about the Bible. Friends, we don't just need to know the Bible. We need to know about the Bible and how it applies to our life. And the question is, why would anyone divorce two things that should be friends? Knowledge of the Bible, knowledge about the Bible. It's not enough to just have intellectual assent to truth. We have to know how to translate this into our marriage, into our work, into our temperament, into our interpersonal skills. And the truth is we're taking two things that should be the best of friends and we're driving a wedge between the knowledge and the application of the word. Friends, if we lived the word out, this would not be a challenge. But the problem is we got a lot of people that are a lot smarter than they live. And we need to make sure that we are pursuing both. You see, we see this in Herod's life. He knew the Bible, but he didn't do a thing. What's he do? Once he hears from the religious leaders. We don't have any idea that Herod has met with the Magi before this. So he meets with the religious leaders. The Magi are running around town asking, where's the king of the Jews? And then Herod, once he knows, calls them secretly. Unwilling, he doesn't even have to walk. He's probably got a chariot. People will carry him on his ba- their back, and he's not going to go the six miles. What, what's he do? He takes these foreigners, and he assumes that they're my subject now. And I can make them my errand boys to go figure out where he's at so that I can come later and, and, and do some things that... Uh, are nefarious. They're not good. Herod makes the inquiry, but he does nothing, even when you have the potential of a fulfillment of Scripture. It's a crazy thing. And Herod has no concern for God or his word. And this drives us to our second point. Religious people can be coldly indifferent to what they already know. The the challenge in pastoral ministry for most of you is to tell you things that you already know and hope that the Spirit brings about such conviction that you live differently than you have. 
I'm convinced for the majority of you, this is not the first sermon on the wise men that you've heard. Every Christmas, you've probably heard something around this zip code. And the challenge for us is to not let our hearts get stony, to not let our hearts grow cold, because, well, we already know that. Don't be like the religious leaders, because we see a great contrast and irony. These magi, these outsiders, seek him. They stop what they're doing. They they go on an international pilgrimage at their own cost. They they quit their job in in the quickest fashion. This would have been a 40-day journey. We, We don't know exactly where they come from. I think they came from Babylon. But you're talking walking, traveling thousands of miles with no public transportation. And when they saw that star, they were ready to go. From a great distance, these outsiders seek him, while the insiders who knew best don't do a thing. At the very beginning of Jesus' life, it's very easy for all the religious leaders to ignore him. Fast forward 33 years, and they can't ignore him anymore. So they will respond. We'll see that as we journey through the book of Matthew. And their response won't be the right one. Because now Jesus is a problem. And while they don't seek him as a child, they will seek him as a man. But they will seek him to murder him and to kill him. Friends, as Scott talked about this weekend, just being being confronted with the grace of God. Do you see the grace of God to the religious leaders here? Herod hears the same prophecy that the Magi hear. God, in his grace, allows the religious leaders to know the truth. This is their invitation to the birthday party. And the Magi, because of what is in their heart, respond completely differently than the people who were in possession of the Scriptures. It's God's grace that people have the opportunity to hear and to turn and to repent. They heard the same Word. They got the same map. They had the same directions to where Jesus was. And they're not going to do a thing. The story concludes in verses 9 through 12. And it shows us something great that we have already seen in this passage. And it's this, that despite insider apathy, outsiders are glad to worship Christ. Look at verses 9 through 12. After hearing the king... They went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Herod had called the Magi in for a secret meeting. This is off the records. There is no official knowledge of any meeting between Herod and the Magi. Not recorded in the annals of history. And Herod thinks that he is sending these foreigners on his mission. And the truth is, Herod isn't sending them anywhere. God has drawn these men to his son. 
And contrary to everything that Herod thinks he's so sly about. Go, you, you go find and then report back to me. Mm-mm. God's not going to be fooled through this whole thing. And he even warns the wise men. Mm-mm. You need to go a different way. And that's a great truth here. Herod thinks he's sending them. We see a great truth that it is God who sovereignly leads people to his son. How do these wise men know? There was something in their history. I think perhaps it was Daniel's testimony that encouraged them to be on the lookout. But how did God draw their attention? He drew it with a star. Now, there, there's, some of you may not be aware of this. There's all kinds of debate. What was this? Was this, um, you know, the early sign for the Christian church was the fish. And so some say, you know, Jupiter was in the constellation Pisces. That's a little bit of a stretch in my opinion. Some say, hey, it could have been Halley's Comet. There and then gone. I think the best explanation is that it may not have physically have been a star at all. You remember when the angels showed up for the shepherds, what happened? The sky lit up. There was some way that God had manifested his glory. Because here's a question. If a strange and distinguished star shows up in the sky, what's going to happen on tonight's newscast? Chicken Little. The sky is falling. The aliens are coming. And apparently, nobody else seems to give a hoot about the star. Could it be that God had so manifested his glory that this star was clear to people whose hearts had been prepared to see it? Now, I'm not going to argue about that. Very well, God could have caused a star to appear. But here's the thing. The star led them to Jerusalem, and then evidently it disappeared. Did you you see what we just read? Once they get to Jerusalem, it says that when they see the star, they rejoice. So evidently, once they get to Jerusalem, spend however long they're in Jerusalem, they decide to go on their way, and the star appears again. The star disappeared. It came back. I don't know what's up with that, but there's something supernatural that is happening here. How did they connect the star to the birth? The star behaved unnaturally, and it came to rest Over a house. Stars don't do that. How do you figure that out? I mean, they're way up there. How do you know it's under this house and not not that house? There was something different that was going on. And God has issued a sign of cosmic significance. I want you to notice something here. God drew these people. Their initial guidance was the very object of their idolatry. They worship stars. They were astrologists and astronomers who practiced magic. And God could even use base things to get their interest. And I think this is fantastic. Where does the star take them? Initially, it takes them where? To Jerusalem. Now, where a king's supposed to be? How do they know to get to Bethlehem? The star. God had used some kind of natural phenomenon to guide them to Jerusalem. He had used their idolatry and he had used something in nature to get them in the general vicinity. But it was the scripture that spoke more clearly than the uncertainty of astrology to get them to the feet of the Christ child. See, God can use all kinds of things, even things that we go... We don't like that kind of stuff. 
And I think the point is here that what nature began, Scripture completed. The uncertain revelation of the star was superseded by a certain word from God. And if there's anything I think Matthew's trying to demonstrate, it's that Jesus is the fulfillment not only of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the world's empty religious systems. He can take pagan astrology and fill it with meaning. And just like God used Caesar's pagan decree to move a pregnant Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, he can use uh, the pagan worship of a star to bring the Magi to Jesus Christ. The men who previously worshipped a star now, at the end of the story, are bowing at the feet of God's only Son. That's beautiful. And the truth here is that anyone, anyone who comes to Christ, comes at God's own bidding and drawing. Unless he warmed our hearts, we would not choose him either. From a Jewish perspective, these magi, and we don't know how many there are. We think there were three because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but the scriptures don't say. These magi, from a Jewish perspective, are the very least deserving guests to the birthday party. But what happens when they get there? They bring gifts. They have made sacrifices. They have left their family. They've left their nation. And it's interesting to note that in Matthew, the gospel written to the Jews, the first worshipers of the Christ child are not Jewish at all. They are Gentile. And this represents that the God that we serve will create allegiances that will go far beyond the old boundaries of Judaism. Because God is not just the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the story concludes with a foreboding warning. We've seen how the religious leaders were completely apathetic. We've seen how the magi were passionate in their seeking. And it ends with the magi being warned in a dream to go a different route, to not go back to Herod, because Herod's cooking up something that's not good. And it's a warning to us that not everyone, like the magi, is content to sacrifice and give gifts to the king of kings. There are some whose reaction to Jesus Christ will be different than what we see here in the scriptures. And the challenge for you is where do you see yourself in this passage? Are you a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your heart diligent to seek him? Are you apathetic? And the the word of grace to us today is wherever you may find yourself, whether you have never worshipped Jesus a day in your life, or if you have fallen off the cart and maybe aren't doing what you should, is it through the gift of repentance, God gives you the opportunity to come home. I pray that you will do it. Join me in prayer. God, the worship of you is a precious, precious privilege. Help us to never turn it into an obligation that we fulfill. Help it not to just be uh, another item on our to-do list for the week. Went to worship, check. 
but help us in our hearts to seek you, to set you apart as Lord, and to consider the worship of you one of the highest priorities of our life. Send your spirit now to do its convicting work and to draw us into yourself. For Lord, we know in your word that you promise us that when you are lifted up, that you indeed will draw all men to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.